book of Ephesians, book of Ephesians chapter 4. I mentioned in the announcements that we're going to really divide the message into two. Our primary emphasis is going to be verse 12 this morning, verse 13 this afternoon. But I do hope that as we are going through here, that you will really engraft this into your soul. Not only would it preserve our own congregation going forward, but that it will also do something if, and we don't desire this to happen, but if you would be removed to another geographical area, say you moved out of state, and you had to find a New Testament assembly, what would you look for? Well, you would be looking for some measure of the characteristics that we are going to go through here this morning and what we've already been through in the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 4. It is the local New Testament church where the glory of God the Father through the Son of God is to be known and seen so that the principalities and powers in heavenly places can give glory to God for this great wisdom of what He is doing. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We've learned previously that Christ has given, He actually purchased this, but He has given spiritual gifts to every believer, regardless of age, regardless of educational status, regardless of economic status here in this world, He has given spiritual gifts to each believer not for their own use, but for the sole purpose of serving one another in a local New Testament assembly. So you think about that. Why did Christ give to me the gift of pastor-teacher? Why did He do that? For you. Why did God give gifts to you? For us. And these giftedness, these gifts that God has given to each member of the body, serving one another so that the body will be built up. And we see that if you look at verse 16, you'll see the whole body being fitted and held together, how? By what every joint, what? Supplies. There's the serving one another in a local New Testament assembly. 
So really, when we think about it, the New Testament doesn't know of a believer that is apart from a local New Testament assembly. In fact, Hebrews says, don't abandon your assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, were there some, yes, but we're to meet the more as we see the day approaching, And then he goes on and warns concerning apostasy of those who are apart from a local New Testament body. That's a pretty grave warning, isn't it? And so here we have this fact that Jesus Christ died for the church. He died, as it were, for his body. That is, local New Testament churches. And one day... This body of Christ is going to assemble together, both Jew and Gentile. What a glorious day that's going to be. Can you imagine the hundreds of thousands, perhaps the millions of saints that are there gathered around the throne of which he has purchased them by his own blood? Imagine the singing in that day. Imagine the gratitude that's going to be expressed in that day. Imagine the perfection of Christ that's going to be seen in that day. The fullness of Him radiating throughout all the universe. Just imagine that day. And then imagine a day like that going on forever. Kind of makes you hungry for it, doesn't it? Kind of makes you look forward to that. But here in this passage, the giftedness that Christ has given to the church are not merely manifestations of spiritual gifts given to individual members of that body, but they are gifted men that Christ has given for the good of His church. These gifted men, verse 11, are the apostles, They are the prophets, they are the evangelists, and they are the pastors and teachers. And we saw that when we're talking about apostles, we're talking about Christ's own personal representative. And those men had qualifications, and one of those qualifications is that they had to have seen the risen Lord himself, and they had to have heard His direct voice to them. So just based on those two qualifications, do we have apostles today? The answer to that is, no, we do not have apostles today. Then we had the prophets. These were men who spoke new revelation to the church for the learning of Jesus Christ. And you'll see an aspect of that. If you go down to chapter 4 and you look at verse 20, he'll say, you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard Him and been taught in Him just as the truth is in Jesus Christ. This is hearing Him through the apostles, and hearing him through the prophets, those men that spoke new revelations so they would learn the things of Christ. And those two men were used of the Lord, primarily the apostles, to inscripturate the revelation that deals with the new covenant. We call it the New Testament. 
It begins with the books of the gospel. It goes on with a narrative of the spread of that gospel. Christ working through his, not a physical body, but now Christ working through his spiritual body, that is the church, which is the book of Acts. And then we have the epistles that are given to us in the remaining uh, books, and those teach us all things about him. They explain things to us. And then you have the things of the future, and that's the book of the book of Revelation. Now, some of the other books have some future things, like the new revelation of the rapture of the church. But the book of Revelation primarily deals with future things. The first couple of chapters deal with those present churches. After that, all those things that are future. And folks, everything that Christ intended to tell us has been told us. And they have written those things down. So even though we don't have the apostles and we don't have the prophets, but we do have the effects of their ministry. And we are holding it in our what? In our hands. We are holding in our hands translations of that Greek New Testament that those apostles wrote. And that's what they left for us. So we could say, in effect, that even though there are no apostles and prophets, their ministry still continues to us through the things that have been written down. And that ministry to us, to the church, is through the Scripture. What a gift that was that Christ gave to us. Then there is the gift of the evangelist. And this is someone who announced the good news of the gospel. It was non-revelatory. It seemed to be itinerant. But we primarily know of this as a work. In 2 Timothy it talks about, don't forget to do the work of an evangelist. That is, the announcing of the good news. And in Timothy's context, it is the announcing of the good news to the hearers that are there in that local New Testament assembly. Preach the word, Timothy, to them. But don't forget in preaching the word, in teaching them all things, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The very essence of the gospel. And folks, these gifts that our shepherd have given to the church are not optional. They are of the utmost necessity. No one grows into maturity apart from these gifts. For example, can a believer grow to maturity apart from the Bible? No, you would say no. Well, that's the work of the apostles and the prophets. You can't grow apart from that. Therefore, when you're talking about the evangelist, however you want to describe that in modern day terms, but what a pastor teacher does is take the already given revelation and give that to a body and teach them all things about Christ and to teach them to observe it, not just to know it, but to practice it in their lives, in the life of that congregation.
These gifts are absolutely necessary. And folks, I suppose if you didn't know what I was aiming at here, if I was to ask you, should we reject the good gifts of God, you would say, absolutely not. Who would do that? And yet there are people who reject the good gifts of the evangelist and the pastor-teacher, and they do not see them as gifts from God. And they are gifts, and they are of His mercy. Now Christ gave them, and here's the title of the message, Christ gave them for the maturity of the church. You'll see that here in verse 12. You'll see the aim in which these men, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, this is their aim, verse 12. The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. What do you mean by that, Paul? Verse 13, to a mature man. I have that highlighted in my verses here. A mature man. What's the result of that? Verse 14, we're no longer to be children. How are we to do that? Verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So here we have these gifts of men, redeemed just as you are, given back to the body of Christ for the purpose of bringing every individual member of that body to maturity. And Paul's going to mention that in the book of Colossians, that that's his aim for every man. If it's a lost man, he wants to lay the foundation of salvation in that person's soul. If it's a born-again man, he wants to bring them to greater and greater maturity in Christ. That was his aim. Now before we look at verse 12... I want to sweep away a possible misconception of what this passage is teaching. This misconception, I suppose, is just from my perspective and my pilgrimage, has been propagated by good men, uh, definitely throughout my lifetime, that I think the passage is not saying. There are men who take, verse 12, the equipping of the saints to mean that the leadership of a local New Testament church is to supply the necessary materials so that the saints can do the, the ministry. So in other words, they would, they would think something along these lines. You know, we ought to have training classes so that you can do the work of the ministry. Maybe I could provide a room or a geographical area so that you can do the work of the ministry. So maybe I can give you whiteboards or, you know, PowerPoint presentations or paper or pens. I sound old-fashioned now, don't I? <laughs> or give you tablets, okay, whatever, to supply the literature that's needed so that that you can be equipped to do ministry. I, I don't think that's what this passage is ultimately saying. 
Then there's others that take, in verse 12, for the work of service, they take that to mean that the sole aim of church leadership is to convince you and teach you to do ministry. And what they mean by ministry is evangelism. That, that that's the sole purpose. And so when you're in these, these types of churches, they, they, every message is like, you know, you're a Baptist and every message ends up being about water baptism. Okay? Or you're a Presbyterian, everything ends up being about sovereignty. Okay? These men, every, it doesn't matter what the message is, they're coming back to some kind of invitation that you need to what? You need to outreach. You need to confess Christ. You need to be an evangelist. You need to reach your neighbors. And folks, do we need to do that? Yes, yes we do. Okay, so don't, don't take what I'm saying as a negative about that. We need to be reminded about that. But I don't think that this is what this passage is ultimately exhorting us to. And then there's this aspect of building up the body of Christ. And some men take that building up to mean numerical growth. That's the way they see it. So that they end up, the whole church's purpose and sole aim is to bring lost people into an environment that is accommodating in order for them to be saved. And they orchestrate everything about that in order to do it. They try to minimize any quote-unquote offense or objections that a lost person might have. So therefore they might have worldly music, they might have theater seats, they might have the lights dim, they might have rock and roll going on. They, all these types of things because they say, well, if you go into a church and they're singing hymns, well, they're just going to say that's boring and they won't come back. Well, they will say that apart from the power of God. But when the power of God's working, when the power of God is working in a person's heart, drawing them to Christ, there's a movement inside their soul to want to know more. And folks, if you would take all of that into maybe a concise statement that is a misconception, it would run something along this. The church leadership's sole purpose is to supply the physical and material necessities to the people of God so that the work, the ministry of evangelism might be accomplished. And so usually what you find in these churches is they multiply ministries that are all designed to bring in the lost And I heard one man put it this way, to bring in the lost in order to keep the saints occupied in the work of the ministry. I actually had a pastor tell me that he has to occupy, he has to work his people very hard because if he doesn't, then they'll cause problems in the church. And so the way not to cause problems is to keep them exhaustingly laboring. I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. Now again, it is true that building up the body of Christ would involve 
growth numerically. Now why would I say that? Because the gift of the evangelist implies that what is going on? That there is least outreach going on, right? And in fact, in the New Testament, just like it presupposes no one's not baptized as a believer, and it presupposes that every genuine believer is part of a New Testament assembly, it also predisposes that the church is confessing Christ. You just don't see Paul coming along in you know, one of the epistles and saying, hey you guys, you're not confessing Christ. He does commend a church, Thessalonica, that goes above and beyond, doesn't he? But he's not really exhorting them, as it were, to do that. But since the gift of the evangelist is mentioned, it implies at least the evangelist is doing it. He's announcing the good news. And he would be used by God to teach others how to announce the good news. But I don't think that's the ultimate end of this passage. If there is one consensus across broad American Christianity today, in its books, in its writings, in its messages and sermons that have addressed this issue, if there's one consensus, it is this, that the American church is extremely immature. Or we could word it this way, that the American church is very childish. How would that be defined? We'll look at verse 14. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's the evidence of childishness. Would you agree with that consensus among pastors today? This is across denominational labels. This is everywhere. And yet, the purpose of these gifts is to make us to a, what kind of man? A mature man. Everybody see that? So folks, perhaps, perhaps you could lay some fault with the purposes and the aims of our churches. That we are not mature, of which broad consensus agrees with. What is the purpose of these gifted men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. First of all, their purpose, verse 12, is for the equipping of the saints. Notice that even the evangelist ultimate end isn't evangelism. They are given for the equipping of who? The saints. The saints. They, are, they are gifts and they have been gifted for serving one another in a local New Testament assembly. 
What does it mean to equip the saints? Well, equipping could refer to preparation, to prepare. What would we be prepared for? We're being prepared ultimately for the coming of Christ. We're being prepared to stand before Him, aren't we? And folks, Christ wants us to stand before Him. He wants the church to be a mature church with individual members in it that are growing up in all things unto Him so that when we stand before Him, we stand before Him in maturity. Everybody see that? Not in childishness, not in, oh, well, how long have you been saved? Well, I've been saved 40 years. Well, you don't even know the first elementary things of Christ. You become dull of hearing. You can't even handle meat. Which I'm quoting from the book of Hebrews. The aim is to stand before Him in maturity. This word equipping in the Greek was also used in a medical setting. And it was used in medical terminology to refer to the setting of a bone. So what would you do with a setting of a bone? You would, the bone is broken. The bone is not in proper order. Everybody with me? It's disabled. It's not functioning like it should be functioning. And so it would be equipped. What would it mean in medical terms? It would mean to set that bone so that the bone can what? Can heal. That's what the purpose of these men function on behalf of a local New Testament assembly. Folks, we all come into the New Testament church broken in some aspect. Right? We can come in with strengths. We can also come in with weaknesses. In fact, our whole life, Christ and God the Father as a good Father is bringing us, chastening us, bringing us to adulthood. So don't despise that. And you'll remember in the book of Hebrews, he says, all right, your, your leg, legs that are lame, put, get back in order and start running this race. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was attempting to do. Those hands that are hung down and all discouraged, pick them up. Get back in the race. You never left the race, but get back racing. That is what these men are doing. 
And folks, would you agree with me that even though we don't have apostles and prophets today, they did leave us something. They left us the Bible. And folks, how is the Bible being used in the life of a church? To give us knowledge and understanding. To give us illumination. So that we can be transformed into His image. In other words, so that we can grow up in likeness to Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? So those men, that's their purpose. And if you look at the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of our New Testament, what is he doing in those churches? He's correcting things that need to be corrected. To be put back in the proper place. And folks, since the aim is maturity, what do you mean by maturity? I mean the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What do I mean by maturity? I mean this, that we as a church body might be filled up to all the fullness of God so that our services are spirit-filled and we walk in the fullness of that Spirit in our day-by-day lives, then these men are given so that you and I, as believers, can outwork the righteousness of Christ in our lives. Now folks, does our New Testament teach that? I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Paul's in prison. He's writing this back to a church that expressed concern for his welfare. They actually sent a man to him to find out about his welfare. And he writes this book back to them. They also brought him an offering which was endearing and sacrificial. This church was not a wealthy church like the church at Corinth. And he says when he writes back to them, Philippians chapter 2, right after he goes through this exhortation, if you want to word it very simply, to be like Christ... He says, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Right Now, what what would you be expecting him to say if his aim is maturity? It would be something like this. Work out your salvation. Right? Grow up in Him. Be like Christ. Be conformed into His image. Work this great salvation out one to another and do it with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you. God is at work in that local New Testament body bringing each member into a conformity of Christ and we're to outwork that one to another. 
And we're to deal with fear and trembling knowing this is the creator of heaven and earth working in us to do this. And if he's doing that work both to will and to do for his good pleasure, if he's doing that work in me, then I ought to do everything I can to facilitate it. Right? Not to quench it. Not to stifle it. Not to say, well, I want to remain a child, or I'm tired of his chastening, or I don't like this. But to work it out with fear and trembling one to another. And folks, where would that start? Verse 14. Folks, where would that start? I bet you wouldn't start here. Do everything you're doing without what? Grumbling. Who are you grumbling to? One another. That's not the righteousness of Christ. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't say in your heart, well, I disagree with this, and I'm going to go tell people I disagree with this. That's not working out. Now, you and I wouldn't have started there, right? We would have said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling and go soul winning. (laughs) And I say to you, go soul winning. But folks, this is body life. Everybody with me? This is body life. Do you like your bones grumbling to you? Tell me, in your body, do you like it when your body grumbles at you? No, you don't. And you don't like it when it disputes with you either. You just want everything to work what? (laughs) Just to work just like it's supposed to work. And folks, that's what we want in a New Testament body. We want every individual member to be growing up into Him and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers are to facilitate this. They're not to grumble or dispute either. I had the same issues you have. But there ought to be a maturity about them that at times they might have to come alongside and say, uh, brother, this is not working out the righteousness of Christ. There, there's a way to handle this. Right? But not just the leadership, not just the pastor teacher, but who? You. Most people don't do the grumbling and disputing to me. They do it where? To each other. other. That's a great opportunity for you to say, brother or sister, you know, that, that we probably shouldn't be speaking this way. This, this is childish talk. And you may not want to say that. People hate to be called childish. And I know one of the hardest things I had as a teenager in my home growing up was my dad and my mother teaching me how to talk. I, I just couldn't understand why this was so important. I mean, I told the truth, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, but you told it in a way it shouldn't be told. Everybody with me? 
This is growing up, maintaining the unity in the body of Christ because our aim is the same aim of Christ in a local New Testament assembly. If we go over to chapter 3 of Philippians, and you look at Paul, and he says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is that great or what? Well, look at what he says, verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this same attitude. And if you're not mature, if you have a different attitude than maturity, well, God will reveal that to you also, verse 16. But let us keep living by the same standard by which we've obtained. In other words, whatever maturity level you've obtained to, keep living at that maturity level, but strive onward. Right? That's what he's saying. And folks, this is exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 says when he says, the Word of God has been given to the pastor, teacher, Timothy. Because it can supply everything you need, listen to this, for every good work. Did you hear that? And it may be warning you. It might involve teaching you. It might involve encouraging you. Don't you enjoy that? It might involve modeling for you what this maturity looks like. But the Word of God is sufficient for every good work to bring us up in righteousness. So what is Timothy to do? Preach the Word. With what aim? Maturity. Maturity. So that is what the aim is. The aim is the equipping unto every good work. And he says here in verse 12 of Ephesians 4, not only for the equipping of the saints, what are they being equipped for? The equipping of the saints for the work of service. For the work of service. Now the word service here could also be translated ministry. It basically is a term that refers to serving each other. It's used in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. You know Acts chapter 6 is the first mention, possibly, doesn't use the word, possibly of the first deacons. What does the word deacon mean? What does the word deacon mean? Servant. Minister. And what was happening in Acts chapter 6 is the disciples were multiplying. 
And the number of believing widows was increasing, and they had a daily meal for them. And you can imagine, right? The number of disciples were multiplying, all types of people in all types of economic situations, and here they are, and they're supplying a daily meal for those widows. They didn't have Social Security back then. And what happened was, is they, they started, these widows started grumbling. And they said that certain people are being served ahead of them. So the church got together. And they decided that what they needed, they needed some servants. They needed some help in this situation. And they decided that those who were gifts to the church, the apostles, shouldn't do this. And so they selected out of that congregation seven men known to be what? Servants. To serve tables at that meal. And I love what the Scripture says that after they did that, the Word of God multiplied. What this is, is that this equipping for the saints so that they can be a servant within the body of Jesus Christ. Now I know that servant slave can have some negative connotations. We either see it as Civil War servant slavery or we see it as the English butler. (laughs) You know, you stand at the church, the greeter, you know, passes out cards. What are we serving to one another? Folks, we are serving to one another the good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk therein. That's what we're serving to each other. Folks, isn't that the aim of God? You've been saved by grace through faith. We are His workmanship unto good works which God hath before ordained before the foundation of the world. Every believer is to be a servant. And it's amazing to me, it's amazing to me, and it was true in my life growing up, but it's amazing to me that parents, you don't teach your children to be servants. You follow the world and try to teach them to be leaders. God calls us to be what? Servants. And in God's kingdom, a servant is a true leader. The world defines leadership as someone, well, I'll suppose it's right, someone who is doing right forcefully. They just do it regardless. And there might be times where that has to happen for the sake of His name. 
But we're to serve one another. We're to act, every saint is to act as an intermediary of God's good works. What God intends for us as a church can only happen through you. Think about that. If God wants to bless you, He's not going to appear in person. If God wants to exhort you, He's not going to show up in your bedroom or beside you during a church service. He's not even going to speak directly to you. If God wants to bless us, He does it through the body. Through one another. Everybody see that? So this this lady over here can be exactly what God wants her to be by serving this person over here with the good works of mercy. So if God wants to show mercy to that person, He does it through this other believer. Isn't that a gift? You're having a hard week, somebody shows up at your house with a meal. Isn't that great? What does that mean? That means God going to gift you with a meal. He had to find a believer to do it. <laughs> if God wants you to grow up or teach you something, He does it through an intermediary, pastor, teacher, perhaps one another as you minister to each other. That great reminding ministry that goes on. Because everybody already knows it, I found out. Because every time I tell them something, they say, I knew that. Okay? Well, they may have known it, but they forgot it. Okay? But we need each other to remind ourselves of that. That's the work of serving one another. We're being equipped, brought up to maturity, so that we can serve one another to help bring them up to maturity. Everybody see that? It's just this one great aim. And folks, that's going to involve your behavior, as we saw in the book of Philippians. That's going to involve how you think. That's going to involve how you speak. You say, well, how I think doesn't affect anybody else here in this church. Oh yeah, it does, because how you think is going to come out. And if you're not thinking like Christ is thinking, then what's going to come out isn't good. We have a responsibility one to another to serve one another, to come in like a little plate and say, I give this to you Here's the fruit of the Spirit out of my life. (laughs) Isn't that a gift? So how would I serve you? I would serve you by loving you like Christ loves. Isn't that what a husband's supposed to do to his wife? How would I serve you? I would serve you by building up your joy in Christ to where He's your only delight. How can we serve one another? 
by using the Scripture and our words to promote peace in the life of someone else, not discontentment. To encourage one another to be patient and to bear under something. To be kind to people. To show them good. To exhibit self-control in my behavior, my mind, and my speech. The Bible refers that to as being sober. To be gentle with one another. Everybody see what I'm saying? Folks, if this is going on, doesn't it maintain the unity? Yes or no? Yes. But it's got to be our aim. You've got to have the same goal as Paul had. This one thing I do. You've got to have the same goal that's the goal of the pastor, teacher, evangelists that are given to our local assembly. You've got to have the same goal they have. And you've got to take that goal not just as a church, but personally. Personally. It's very hard to learn to do this. And we're going to stop here. But let me give you some things that I do that you're probably not aware of. I would say every time I do this, but I know that's not true. But in general, my demeanor is this. When you're talking to me, I'm asking myself, how can I speak appropriately so that I can build you up toward Christ? I'm thinking that. Folks, would that be a mark of of adulthood? Adults just don't only think about themselves. Adults think about others. Children only think about who? Themselves. I'm asking myself while you're talking to me in prayer, I'm asking, is there scripture that illustrates this situation or concern? So, where's my mindset? It's on the scripture. I'm not just saying what I want to say. I got to be, if I'm going to speak, if any man speak, he's to speak as the? If you speak, you're to speak exactly what the scripture is supposed to say about it. A third thing in general I think of, I may not word it this way, is does the New Testament tell me how to communicate this? Later on in this book, he's going to give us this instruction. Speak truth. Speak truth among yourselves. Why? 
Because truth is truth, and that's what you ought to be saying. Paul doesn't say that. He says, because you're members one of another. Now folks, I would have never argued that way. I didn't do that with my kids. I didn't say, now look, you're to speak the truth because we're members one of another. I said, speak the truth, it's right to do. But that's not how Paul argues that. Everybody with me? That's not how he argues it. So how does the New Testament tell me how to communicate this? And then folks... I'm also praying for wisdom because just like parents with your children or us with one another, there has to be wisdom in evaluating the situation. For instance, if my four-year-old says, Daddy, can I drive the car? I'll probably laugh it off. (laughs) Right? What am I doing? He's a child. Children say childish what? They say childish things. And when they're really, really young, it's kind of cute sometimes. But later on, perhaps in junior high or high school, they start saying certain things. You as a parent start saying, uh, we, we better bring this to their attention. Right? You didn't do it when they were four or five. But now, it's the appropriate time, it's appropriate wisdom in order to how to address that. And folks, as a pastor, I understand that all of us, including myself, are sinful beings. So if I want to find something that if I wanted to harp on you about or harp on myself, you could find it, we could find it one with another. But folks, what I'm interested in is a lot of times, and don't get don't go around saying pastor's probably seeing something he's not talking to me about. We all do this, okay? You see something, but it, it really isn't affecting their walk or testimony. So what do you do? You don't do anything. You may pray about it, right? But there's other times where it does affect the life of the church, and it will affect you. And it will affect how the world looks upon us, right? That has to be what? It has to be addressed. And folks, lastly, you have to make it your aim not to have the other believer bow to you in the situation. but to bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Folks, a lot of times when we get into strong arguments, it doesn't mean you're yelling, but you're in a strong argument. Ultimately, what, one per, what each party wants is for you to bow to their argument. Right? You're saying, bow your knee to me in this. But you're not Lord. (laughs) To Him, every knee will what? In other words, you really want that person, if they do agree with your opinion, you want them to agree with it by them bowing the knee to Him. 
And I, I love it many, many times. This has happened many, many times over my 35 plus years of ministry where someone has come to me and said, Pastor, the Lord showed me this and I corrected it. It was great. And the Lord really brought me down and I bowed my knee before Him and just confessed it. And the Lord's really working in my life. And I'm like, man, that is wonderful. But I talked to them about this a week earlier. In other words, they didn't come in and say, Pastor, you finally did it. I agree with you. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that if it's in the right spirit, giving honor to whom honor is due. But folks, my point is, you really want them to bow the knee to who? Christ. Christ. And that's going to take growing up to know how to do this. Christ was a master at this. Folks, do we see the aim? Do you know what my passion for you is? Do you know what your passion ought to be for each other? It's the same thing. The equipping so that you can serve one another by building up each other into the headship of Jesus Christ. That's the aim. That's the purpose. And when a new believer comes into a congregation, guess what our aim is? The same. (laughs) We're to bring them to a point where they come to understand the purpose of a church and the aim of a church and what we're doing here so that they become a full participant in this exact thing. And it just goes on and on and on and on until the day you are fully prepared to see Him. Let's pray.